Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mark Twain's Letters from Hawaii. All books that Uvula Audio presents are in the public domain. Volume 2 Letter 4 Honolulu, March 1866 A revival elaborated a little more. We came in sight of two of this group of islands, Oahu and Molokai, on the morning of the 18th, and soon exchanged the dark blue waters of the deep sea for the brilliant blue light of sounding. The fat, ugly birds, said to be a species of albatross, which had skimmed after us on tireless wings clear across the ocean, left us, and an occasional flying fish went skimming over the water in their stead. Oahu loomed high, rugged, treeless, barren, black, and dreary out of the sea, and in the distance, Molokai lay like a homely, sway-backed whale on the water. The Hawaiian Flag As we rounded the promontory of Diamond Head, bringing into view a grove of coconut trees, first ocular proof that we were in the tropics, we ran up the stars and stripes at the main Spencer gaff, and the Hawaiian flag at the fore. The latter is suggested of the prominent political elements of the island. It is part French, part English, part American, and is Hawaiian in general. The Union is the English cross. The remainder of the flag, horizontal stripes, looks American, but has a blue French stripe in addition to our red and white ones. The flag was gotten up by foreign legations in council with the Hawaiian government. The eight stripes refer to the eight islands which are inhabited. The other four are barren rocks incapable of supporting a population. Reflections As we came in sight, we fired a gun, and a good part of Honolulu turned out to welcome the steamer. It was Sunday morning and about church time, and we steamed through the narrow channel to the music of six different church bells, which sent their mellow tones far and wide over hills and valleys which were peopled by naked savages, thundering barbarians only 50 years ago. Six Christian churches within five miles of the ruins of a pagan temple, where human sacrifices were daily offered up to hideous idols in the last century. We were within pistol shot of one of a group of islands whose ferocious inhabitants closed in upon the doomed and helpless Captain Cook and murdered him only 87 years ago. And lo, their descendants were a church, Behold what the missionaries have wrought. The Crowd on the Pier By the time we had worked our slow way up to the wharf under the guidance of McIntyre, the pilot, a mixed crowd of four or five hundred people had assembled. Chinamen, in costume with their country, foreigners and the better class of natives, and half-whites in carriages and dressed in Sacramento summer fashion. Other native men on foot, some in the cast-off clothing of white folks, and a few wearing a battered hat, an old ragged vest, and nothing else. At least nothing but an unnecessarily slender rag passed between their legs. Native women clad in a single garment, a bright-colored robe or a wrapper as voluminous as a balloon with full sleeves. This robe is gathered from shoulder to shoulder, before and behind, and then descends in ample folds to the feet, seldom a chemise or any undergarment, it fits like a circus tent fits, the tent pole and no hoops. These robes were bright yellow or bright crimson or pure black, occasionally, or gleaming white. But solid colors and stunning ones were the rule. They wore little hats, such as the sex wear in your cities, and some of the younger women had very pretty faces and splendid black eyes and heavy masses of long black hair, occasionally put up in a net. Some of these dark gingerbread-colored beauties were on foot, generally on barefoot, I may add, and others were on horseback, a straddle. They never ride in any other way. They ought to know which way is best, for there are no more accomplished horsewomen in all the world, it is said. The balance of the crowd consisted chiefly of little half-naked native boys and girls. All were chattering in the catchy, chopped-up Kanaka language, but what they were chattering about will always remain a mystery to me. The King Captain Fitch said, There's the King. That's him in the buggy. I know him as far as I can see him. I had never seen a King in my life, and I naturally took out my notebook and put him down. Tall, slender, dark, full-bearded, 
Green frock coat with lapels and collar bordered with gold braid an inch wide. Plug hat, broad gold band around it. Royal costume looks too much like a livery. This man isn't as fleshy as I thought he was. I just got these notes entered when Captain Fitch discovered that he had got hold of the wrong king, or rather, that he had got hold of the king's driver, or a carriage driver, of one of the nobility. The king was not present at all. It was a great disappointment to me. I heard afterwards that the comfortable, easy-going King Kamehameha V had been sitting on a barrel on the wharf the day before fishing, but there was no consolation in that. That did not restore me to my lost king. Honolulu The town of Honolulu, said to contain between twelve and 15,000 inhabitants, is spread over a dead level, has streets from 20 to 30 feet wide solid, and level as a floor, most of them straight as a line and a few as crooked as a corkscrew. Houses, one or two stories high, built of wood, straw, dobies, and dull cream-colored pebbles and shell-conglomerated coral cut into oblong square blocks and laid in cement, but no brick houses. There are great yards, more like plazas, around a large number of the dwelling houses, and these are carpeted with bright green grass into which your foot sinks out of sight, and they are ornamented by a hundred species of beautiful flowers and blossoming shrubs and shaded by a noble tamarind trees and the pride of India with its fragrant flower and the umbrella tree, and I do not know how many more. I had rather smell Honolulu at sunset than the old police courtroom in San Francisco. Almost a king. I had not shaved since I left San Francisco ten days before. As soon as I got ashore, I hunted for a striped pole and shortly found one. I always had a yearning to be a king. This may never be, I suppose, but at any rate it will always be a satisfaction to me to know that if I am not a king, I am the next thing to it. I have been shaved by the king's barber. Landsman on Sea Legs Walking about on shore was very uncomfortable at first. There was no spring to the solid ground, and I missed the heaving and rolling of the ship's deck. It was unpleasant to lean unconsciously into an anticipated lurch of the world and find that the world did not lurch as it should have done. And there was something else missed, something gone, something wanting. I could not tell what. A dismal vacuum of some kind or other. A sense of emptiness. But I found out what it was presently. It was the absence of the ceaseless dull hum of beating waves and whipping sails and fluttering of the propeller and creaking of the ship. Sounds I'd become so accustomed to that I'd ceased to notice them and had become unaware of their existence until the deep Sunday stillness on shore made me vaguely conscious that a familiar spirit of some kind or other was gone from me. Walking on the solid earth with legs used to the giving of the decks under his tread made Brown sick and he went off to bed and left me to wander alone about this odd-looking city of the tropics. New Scenes and Strong Contrasts The further I traveled through town, the better I liked it. Every step revealed a new contrast, disclosed something I was unaccustomed to. In place of the grand mud-colored brownstone fronts of San Francisco, I saw neat wet cottages with green window shutters. In place of front yards like billiard tables with iron fences around them, I saw those cottages surrounded by ample yards, about like Portsmouth Square as to size, thickly clad with green grass and shaded by tall trees, through whose dense foliage the sun could scarcely penetrate. In place of the customary infernal geranium languishing in dust and general debility on tin-roofed rear additions or in bedroom windows, I saw luxurious banks and thickets of flowers, fresh as a meadow after a rain, and glowing with richest dyes. In place of the dingy horrors of the willows and the painful, sharp-pointed shrubbery of that funny caricature of nature which they call South Park, I saw huge-bodied, wide-spreading forest trees with strange names and stranger appearances, trees that cast a shadow like a thundercloud and were able to stand alone without being tied to green poles. In place of those vile, tiresome, stupid, everlasting goldfish, 
wiggling around in glass globes and assuming all shades and degrees of distortion through the magnifying and diminishing qualities of their transparent prison houses, I saw cats, tomcats, Marianne cats, long-tailed cats, bobtail cats, blind cats, one-eyed cats, wall-eyed cats, cross-eyed cats, gray cats, black cats, white cats, yellow cats, striped cats, spotted cats, tame cats, wild cats, singed cats, individual cats, groups of cats, platoons of cats, companies of cats, regiments of cats, armies of cats, multitudes of cats, millions of cats, and all of them sleek, fat, lazy, and sound asleep. In place of roughs and rowdies, staring and black guarding on the corners, I saw long-haired, saddle-colored Sandwich Island maidens sitting on the ground in the shade of corner houses, gazing indolently at whatever and who happened along. Instead of that wretched cobblestone pavement nuisance, I walked on a firm foundation of coral built up from the bottom of the sea by the absurd but persevering insect of that name, with a light layer of lava and cinders overlying the coral, belched up out of the fathomless hell long ago through the seared and blackened crater that stands dead and cold and harmless yonder in the distance now. Instead of cramped and crowded streetcars, I met dusky native women sweeping by, free as the wind, on fleet horses and a straddle, with gaudy riding sashes streaming like banners behind them. Instead of the combined stretches of Sacramento Street, Chinadom, and Brandon Street slaughterhouses, I breathe the balmy fragrance of jessamine, oleander, and the pride of India. In place of the hurry and bustle and noisy confusion of San Francisco, I moved in the midst of a summer calm as tranquil as dawn in the Garden of Eden. In place of our familiar skirting sand hills in the Placid Bay, I saw on the one side a framework of tall, precipitous mountains close at hand, clad in refreshing green and cleft by deep, cool, chasm-like valleys, and in front the grand sweep of the ocean, a brilliant, transparent green near the shore, bound and bordered by a long white line of foamy spray dashing against the reef, and further out the dead blue water of the deep sea, flecked with white caps, and in the far horizon a single lonely sail. At this moment... The man Brown, who has no better manners than to read over one shoulder, observed, Yes, and hot. Go on now and put it all down. Now that you've begun, just say, And more centipedes and cockroaches and fleas and lizards and red ants and scorpions and spiders and mosquitoes and missionaries. Oh, blame my cats if I'd lived here two months, not if I was high muckety-muck and king of wahoo and had a harem full of hyenas. He meant wahini. The word wahini seems to answer for wife, woman, and female of questionable character indifferently. I never can get this man Brown to understand that hyena is not the proper pronunciation. He says, It ain't any odds. It describes some of them anyway. I remarked, But Mr. Brown, these are trifles. Trifles be blowed, he answered. You get nipped by one of them scorpions once and see how you like it. There was Mrs. Jones swabbing her face with a sponge. She felt something grab her cheek, and she dropped the sponge, and out popped a scorpion an inch and a half long. Well, she just got up and danced the Highland Fling for two and a half hours, and yelled. Why, you could have heard her from Luau to Hula Hula with the fair wind. And for three days she soaked her cheek in brandy and salt, and it swelled up as big as your two fists. And you want to know what made me light out of bed so sudden last night? Only a centipede. Nothing only a centipede with 42 legs on the side and a foot high enough to burn a hole through a rawhide. Don't you know one of them things grabbed Miss Boone's foot when she was riding one day? He was hitting the stirrup and just clamped himself around her foot and sunk his fangs, plunged through her soul. And she just throwed her whole soul into one war whoop and then fainted. And she didn't get out of bed nor set that foot on the floor again for three weeks. And how did Captain Godfrey always get off so easy? Why, because he always carried a bottle full of scorpions and centipedes soaked in alcohol, and whenever he got bit, he bathed that place with that devilish mixture or took a drink out of it. 
I don't recollect which. And how did he have to do once when he didn't have his bottle long? He had to cut out that bite with his knife and fill up that hole with arnica and then prop his mouth open with the boot jack to keep from getting the lockjaw. Ah, fill me up with this lovely country. You can go on writing that slop about balmy breezes and fragrant flowers and all that sort of truck, but you're not going to leave out them centipedes and things for want of being reminded of it, you know. I said mildly. But Mr. Brown, these are mere... Mere your grandmother. They ain't the mere anything. What's the use of you telling me they're the mere, mere, whatever it was you're going to call it? You look at them raw splotches all over my face, all over my arms, all over my body. Those are mosquito bites. Don't tell me about mere, mere things. You can't get around them mosquito bites. I took and brushed out my bar, mosquito net, good night before last, and tucked it all around, and before morning I was eternally chawed up, anyhow. And the night before, I fastened her up all right and got in bed and smoked that old strong pipe until I got strangled and smothered and couldn't get out. And then they swarmed in there and jammed their bills through my shirt and sucked me as dry as a life preserver. And how did that deadfall work? I was two days making it and sweated two buckets full of brine and blame the mosquitoes even went under it. And sloshing around in my sleep, I catched my foot in it and got it flattened out so it wouldn't go into a green turtle shell 42 inches across the back. Jim Iyer's grinding out seven double verses of poetry about wahoo, and crying about leaving the blasted place in two last verses. And you slobber and hear about, there you are. Now, now, what'd you say? That yellow spider could straddle over a saucer just like nothing. And if I hadn't been here to set that spittoon on him, he would have been between your sheets in a minute. He was traveling straight for your bed. He had his eye on it. Just pull at that web that he's been stringing after him. Pretty near as hard as break as sewing silk. And look at his feet sticking out all over around that spittoon. Ah, confound wahoo. I'm glad that Brown got disgusted at the murdered spider and went. I don't like to be interrupted when I'm writing, especially by Brown, who is one of those men who always looks at the unpleasant side of everything. And I seldom do. Mark Twain Letter 5 Honolulu, March 1866 Board and lodging secured I did not expect to find as comfortable a hotel as the American with its large, airy, well-furnished rooms, distinguished by the perfect neatness and cleanness, its cool, commodious verandas, its excellent tables, its ample front yard carpeted with grass and adorned with shrubbery, etc. So I was agreeably disappointed. One of our lady passengers from San Francisco, who brings high recommendations, has purchased a half-interest in the hotel. She shows such a determination to earn success that I heartily wish she may achieve it, and the more so because she is an American. And if common remark can be depended upon, the foreign element here will not allow an American to succeed if a good strong struggle can prevent it. Several of us have taken rooms in a cottage in the center of town and are well satisfied with our quarters. There's a grassy yard as large as Platt's Hall on each of the three sides of the premises. A great number of great tamarind and algeropa trees tower above us, and their dense, wide-spreading foliage casts a shade that pales our veranda with a sort of solemn twilight even at noonday. If I were not so fond of looking into the rich masses of green leaves that swathe the stately tamarind right before my door, I would idle less and write more, I think. The leaf of this tree is of the size and shape of that of our sickly, homely locust in the States. But the tamarind is a much more superb tree than the locust, as a beautiful white woman is more lovely than a digger squaw who may chance to generally resemble her in shape and size. The algeraba, my spelling is a guesswork, has a gnarled and twisted trunk as thick as a barrel, far-reaching crooked branches and a delicate feathery foliage that would be much better suited to a garden shrub than to so large a tree. We have got some handsome mango trees about us also, with dark green leaves, as long as goose quills and not more than twice as broad. The trunk of this tree is about six inches through and is very straight and smooth. Five feet from the ground it divides into three branches of equal size, which bend out with graceful curve and then assume an upright position. The main branches are not always three in number. 
I believe, but ours has this characteristic at any rate. We pay 5 to $7 a week for furnished rooms and $10 for board. Further particulars in this connection. Mr. Lawler, an American, well spoken of, keeps a restaurant where meals can be had at all hours. So you see that folks of both regular and eccentric habits can be accommodated in Honolulu. Washing is done chiefly by the natives. Price, a dollar a dozen. If you're not watchful, though, your shirt won't stand more than one washing, because Kanaka artists work more by the destructive method. They use only cold water, sit down by a brook, soap the garment, lay it on one rock, and pound it with another. This gives a shirt a handsome fringe around its borders, but it is ruinous on buttons. If your washerwoman knows you will not put up with this sort of thing, however, she will do her pounding with a bottle or else rub your clothes clean with her hands. After the garments are washed, the artist spreads them on the green grass and the flaming sun and the wind soon bleach them as white as snow. They are then ironed on a cocoa leaf mat spread out on the ground and the job is finished. I cannot discover that anything of the nature of starch is used. Board, lodging, clean clothes, furnished rooms, coal, oil, or whale oil lamp, dingy, greasy, and villainous. Next, you want water, fruit, tobacco, and cigars, possibly wines and liquors. And then you are fixed and ready to live in Honolulu. Water. The water here is pure, sweet, cool, clear as crystal, and comes from a spring in the mountains, and is distributed all over the town through leaden pipes. You can find a hydrant spurting away at the bases of three or four trees in a single yard sometimes. So plentiful and cheap is this excellent water. Only $24 a year supplies a whole household with a limitless quantity of it. Fruit You must have fruit. You feel the want of it here. At any rate, I do, though I cared nothing whatever for it in San Francisco. You pay about 25 cents, two reals, in the language of the country, borrowed from Mexico, where a good deal of their silver money comes from, a dozen for oranges. And so delicious are they that some people frequently eat a good many at lunch. I seldom eat more than 10 or 15 at a sitting, however, because I despise to see anybody gourmandize. Even 15 is a little surprising to me, though for two or three oranges in succession were about as much as I could ever relish at home. Bananas are worth about a bit a dozen, enough for that rather overrated fruit. Strawberries are plenty and as cheap as the bananas. Those which are carefully cultivated here have a far finer flavor than the California article. They are in season a good part of the year. I have a kind of general idea that the tamarinds are rather sour this year. I had a curiosity to taste these things, and I knocked half a dozen off the tree and ate them the other day. They sharpened my teeth up like a razor and put a wire edge on them that I think will likely wear off when the enamel does. My judgment now is that when it comes to sublimated sourness, persimmons will have to take a back seat and let the tamarinds come to the front. They are shaped and colored like a peanut and about three times as large. The seeds of the thin pod are covered with that sour, gluey substance which I experimented on. They say tamarinds make excellent preserves and by a wise provision of providence they are generally placed in sugar-growing countries, and also that a few of them placed in impure water at sea will render it palatable. Mangoes and guavas are plenty. I do not like them. The limes are excellent, but not very plenty. Most of the apples brought into this market are imported from Oregon. Those I have eaten were as good as bad turnips, but not better. They claim to raise good apples and peaches on some of these islands, I have not seen any grapes or pears or melons here. They may be out of season, but I keep thinking it is dead summertime now. Cigars The only cigars smoked here are those trifling, insipid, tasteless, flavorless things they call manilas. Ten for twenty-five cents. And it would take a thousand to be worth half the money. After you've smoked about thirty-five dollars worth of them, in the forenoon, you feel nothing but a desperate yearning to go out somewhere and take a smoke. They say high duties and a sparse population render it unprofitable to import good cigars, but I do not see why some enterprising citizen does not manufacture them from the native tobacco. A Kanaka gave me some Oahu tobacco yesterday, 
of fine texture and pretty good flavor, and so strong that one pipe full of it satisfied me for several hours. This man, Brown, has just come in and says he has bought a couple of tons of manila to smoke tonight. Wines and Liquors Wines and liquors can be had in abundance, but not of the best quality. The duty on brandy and whiskey amounts for about $3 a gallon, and on wines, from 30 to 60 cents a bottle, according to market value. And here I would caution Californians who design visiting these islands against bringing wines or liquors with their baggage, lest they provoke the confiscation of the latter. They will be told that to uncork the bottles and take a little of the contents out will compass the disabilities of the law, but they may find it dangerous to act upon such a suggestion, which is nothing but an unworthy evasion of the law at best. It is incumbent upon the customs officers to open trunks and search for contraband articles, and although I think the spirit of the law means to permit foreigners to bring a little wine or liquor ashore for private use, I know the letter of it allows nothing of the kind. In addition to searching a passenger's baggage, the customs house officer makes him square that he's got no contraband with him. I will also mention, as a matter of information, that a small sum, two dollars for each person, is exacted for permission to land baggage, and this goes to support the hospitals. I have said that the wines and liquors sold here are not of the best quality. There seem to be no hard, regular drinkers in this town, or at least very few. You perceive that the duties are high. Saloon keepers pay a license of $1,000 a year. They must close up at 10 o'clock at night and not open again before daylight the next morning. They are not allowed to ever open on Sundays at all. These laws are very strict and are rigidly observed. Water again. I must come back to water again, though I thought I had exhausted the subject. As no ice is kept here, and as the notion that snow is brought to Honolulu from the prodigious mountains on the island of Hawaii is a happy fiction of some imaginative writer, the water used for drinking is usually kept cool by putting it into monkeys and placing those animals in open windows where the breezes of heaven may blow upon them. Monkeys are slender-necked, large-bodied, gourd-shaped, earthenware vessels, manufactured in Germany, and are popularly supposed to keep water very cool and fresh. But I cannot endorse that supposition. If a wet blanket were wrapped around the monkey, I think the evaporation would cool the water within, but nobody seems to consider it worthwhile to go to that trouble. I include myself among that number. Ice is worth $100 a ton in San Francisco, and five or 600 here. And if the steamer continues to run, a profitable trade may possibly be driven in the article hereafter. It does not pay to bring it from Sitka and sailing vessels, though. It's been tried. It proved a mutinous and demoralizing cargo, too, for the sailors drank the melted freight and got so high-toned that they refused ever afterwards to go to sea unless the captains would guarantee them ice water on the voyage. Brown got that latter fact from Captain Phelps and says he coppered it in consideration of the source. To copper a thing, he informs me, is to bet against it. Etiquette. If you get in a conversation with a stranger in Honolulu and experience that natural desire to know what sort of ground you're treading on by finding out what manner of man your stranger is, strike out boldly and address him as Captain. Watch him narrowly, and if you see by his countenance that you are on the wrong track, ask him where he preaches. It's a safe bet he is either a missionary or the captain of a whaler. I am now personally acquainted with 72 captains and 96 missionaries. The captains and ministers form one half of the population. The third fourth is composed of common Kanakas and mercantile foreigners and their families. And the final fourth is made up of the high officers of the Hawaiian government. And there are just about cats enough for three of them apiece all around. A solemn stranger met me in the suburbs yesterday and said, Good morning, your reverence. Preaching the stone church yonder, no doubt? No, I don't. I'm not a preacher, I said. Really, I beg your pardon, Captain. I trust you had a good season. How much oil? Oil? Why, what do you take me for? I'm not a whaler. Oh, a thousand pardons, your excellency. Major general in the household troops, no doubt. Minister of the interior. Secretary of war. First gentleman of the bedchamber. Commissioner of the Royal. Stuff it, man. I'm no official. I'm not connected in any way with the government. Bless my life, then. 
who the mischief are you? What the mischief are you? And how the mischief did you get here? And where in the thunder did you come from? I'm only a private personage, an unassuming stranger lately from America, I said. Not a missionary? No, not a whaler? Not a member of His Majesty's government? Not even Secretary of the Navy? Ah, oh, heaven, it's too blissful to be true. Alas, I do but dream. And yet that noble, honest countenance, those oblique, ingenuous eyes, that massive head incapable of, well, of anything. Your hand, give me your hand, bright waif. Excuse these tears. For sixteen weary years, I have yearned for a moment like this, and... Here, his feelings were too much for him, and he swooned away. I pitied the poor creature from the bottom of my heart. I was deeply moved. I shed a few tears on him and kissed him for his mother. I then took what small change he had and shoved off. Mark Twain Letter 6 Honolulu, March, 1866 Coming home from prison I am probably the most sensitive man in the kingdom of Hawaii tonight, especially about sitting down in the presence of my betters. I have ridden 15 or 20 miles on horseback since 5 p.m., and to tell the honest truth, I have a delicacy about sitting down at all. I am one of the poorest horsemen in the world, and I never mount a horse without experiencing a sort of dread that I may be setting out on the last mysterious journey which all of us must take sooner or later, and I never come back in safety from a horseback trip without thinking of my latter end for two or three days afterwards. This same old regular devotional sentiment began just as soon as I sat down here five minutes ago. An excursion to Diamond Head and the King's Coconut Grove was planned today, time 4.30 p.m. The party to consist of half a dozen gentlemen and three ladies. They all started at the appointed hour except myself. I was at the government prison and got so interested in its examination that I did not notice how quickly the time was passing. Somebody remarked that it was 20 minutes past 5 o'clock, and that woke me up. It was fortunate circumstance that Captain Phillips was there with his turnout, as he calls a top buggy that Captain Cook brought here in 1778, and a horse that was here when Captain Cook came. Captain Phillips takes a just pride in his driving and in the speed of his horse, and to his passion for displaying them I owe it that we were only 16 minutes coming from the prison to the American Hotel a distance which has been estimated to be over half a mile, but it took some awful driving. The captain's whip came down fast, and the blows started so much dust out of the horse's hide that during the last half of the journey we rode through an impenetrable fog and ran by a pocket compass in the hands of Captain Fish, a whaler captain of 26 years' experience, who sat there through the perilous voyage as self-possessed as if he had been on the euchre deck of his own ship and calmly said, Port, your helm, port, from time to time, and hold her a little free, steady so-so, and luff down hard to the starboard. And never once lost his presence of mind or betrayed the least anxiety by voice or manner. When we came to anchor at last and Captain Phillips looked at his watch and said, Sixteen minutes, I told you it was in her. That's over three miles an hour and I could see he felt entitled to a compliment, so I said I had never seen lightning go like that horse, and I never had. The Steed Oahu The landlord of the Americans said that the party had been gone nearly an hour, but that he could give me my choice of several horses that could easily overtake them. I said, never mind, I preferred a safe horse to a fast one. I would like to have an excessively gentle horse. A horse with no spirit whatever. A lame one, if he had such a thing. Inside of five minutes, I was mounted and perfectly satisfied with my outfit. I had no time to label him this as a horse, and so if the public took him for a sheep, I cannot help it. I was satisfied, and that was the main thing. I could see that he had as many fine points as any man's horse, and I just hung my hat on one of them behind the saddle and swabbed the perspiration from my face and started. I named him after this island. Oahu. The first gate he came to, he started in, and I had neither whip nor spur, and so I simply argued the case with him. He firmly registered resentment, but ultimately yielded to insult and abuse. He backed out of that gate and stared for another one on the other side of the street. 
I triumphed by my former process. Within the next 600 yards, he crossed the street 14 times and attempted 13 gates. And in the meantime, the tropical sun was beating down and threatening to cave in the top of my head, and I was literally dripping with perspiration and profanity. I am only human, and I was sorely aggravated. I shall behave better next time. He quit the gate business after that and went along peaceably enough, but absorbed in meditation. I noticed this latter circumstance, and it soon began to fill me with the gravest apprehension. I said to myself, this malignant brute is planning some new outrage, some fresh deviltry or other. No horse ever thought over a subject so profoundly as this one is doing just for nothing. The more this preyed upon my mind, the more uneasy I became, until at last the suspense became unbearable, and I dismounted to see if there was anything wild in his eyes, for I had heard that the eye of this noblest of our domestic animals is very expressive. I cannot describe what a load of anxiety was lifted from my mind when I found that he was only asleep. I woke him up and started him into a faster walk, and then the inborn villainy of his nature came out again. He tried to climb over a stone wall five or six feet high. I saw that I must apply force to this horse and that I might as well begin first as last. I plucked a stout switch from a tamarind tree, and the moment he saw it, he gave in. He broke into a convulsive sort of canter, which had three short steps in it and one long one, and reminded me alternately of the clattering shake of the great earthquake and the sweeping plunge of the Ajax in a storm. Out of prison, but in the stocks. And now it occurs to me that there can be no fitter occasion than the present to pronounce a fervent curse upon the man who invented the American saddle. There is no seat to speak of about it, one might as well sit in a shovel, and the stirrups are nothing but ornamental nuisance. If I were to write down here all the abuse I expended on those stirrups, it would make a large book, even without pictures. Sometimes I got one foot so far through that the stirrup partook of the nature of an anklet. Sometimes both feet went through, and I was handcuffed by the legs. And sometimes my feet got clear through, and left the stirrups wildly dangling about my shins. Even when I was in proper position and carefully balanced upon the balls of my feet, there was no comfort in it, on account of my nervous dread that they were going to slip one way or the other in a moment. But the subject is too exasperating to write about. About Horses and Kanaka Shrewdness This is a good time to drop in a paragraph of information. There is no regular livery stable in Honolulu, or indeed in any part of the Kingdom of Hawaii. Therefore, unless you are acquainted with wealthy residents, who all have good horses, you must hire animals of the vilest description from the Kanakas. Any horse you hire, even though it be from a white man, is not often of much account, because it will be brought in for you from some ranch and has necessarily been leading a hard life. If the Kanakas, who have been caring for him, inveterate riders they are, have not ridden him half to death every day themselves, you can depend upon it that they have been doing the same thing by proxy, by clandestinely hiring him out. At least I'm so informed. The result is that no horse has a chance to eat, drink, rest, recuperate, or look well or feel well, and so strangers go about in the islands mounted as I was today. In hiring a horse from a Kanaka, you must have all your eyes about you, because you can rest satisfied that you are dealing with as shrewd a rascal as ever patronized a penitentiary. You may leave your door open and your trunk unlocked as long as you please, and he will not meddle with your property. He has no important vices and no inclination to commit robbery on a large scale, but if he can get ahead of you in the horse business, he will take a genuine delight in it. This trait is characteristic of horse jockeys the world over, isn't it? He will overcharge you if he can. He will hire you a fine-looking horse at night, anybody's, maybe the king's if the royal steed is convenient, and bring you the mate to my Oahu in the morning and contend it is the same animal. If you raise a row, he will get out by saying it was not himself who made the bargain with you, but his brother, who went out in the country this morning. They always have got a brother to shift the responsibility upon. A victim said to one of these fellows one day, but I know I hired the horse from you because I noticed that scar on your cheek, and the reply was not bad. 
Oh, yes, yes, my brother, all same, we twins. A friend of mine, Jay Smith, hired a horse yesterday, the Kanaka warranting him to be in excellent condition. Smith had a saddle and a blanket of his own, and he ordered the Kanaka to put these on the horse. The Kanaka protested he was perfectly willing to trust the gentleman with the saddle that was already on the animal, but Smith refused to use it. The change was made, then Smith noticed that the Kanaka had only changed the saddles and had left the original blanket on the horse. He said he forgot to change the blankets, and so, to cut the bother short, Smith mounted and rode away. The horse went lame a mile from town and afterwards got to cutting up some extraordinary capers. Smith got down and took off the saddle, but the blanket stuck fast to the horse, glued to a procession of raw sores. The Kanaka's mysterious conduct stood explained. Another friend of mine bought a pretty good horse from a native a day or two ago after a tolerably thorough examination of the animal. He discovered today that the horse is as blind as a bat in one eye. He meant to have examined that eye and came home with a general notion he had done it. But he remembers now that every time he made the attempt, his attention was called to something else by his victimizer. One more yarn and then I will pass to something else. I'm informed when Leland was here, he bought a pair of very respectable-looking match horses from a native. They were in a little stable with a partition through the middle of it, one horse in each apartment. Leland examined one of them critically through a window, the Kanaka's brother having gone to the country with the key, and then went around the house and examined the other through a window on the other side. He said it was the neatest match he'd ever seen and paid for the horses on the spot, whereupon the Kanaka departed to join his brother in the country. The scoundrel had shamefully swindled Leland. There was only one match horse, and he'd examined his starboard side through one window and his port side through the other. I decline to believe this story, but I give it because it's worth something as a fanciful illustration of a fixed fact, namely that the Kanaka horse jockey is fertile in imagination and elastic in conscience. Honolulu Prices for Horse Flesh you can buy a pretty good horse for 40 or $50 and a good enough horse for all practical purposes for two and a half. I estimate a wahoo to be worth somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 cents. A good deal better animal than he was sold here the day before yesterday for a dollar and six bits and sold again today for $2.25. Brown bought a handsome and lively little pony yesterday for $10. And about the best common horse on the island, and he is a really good one, sold yesterday with good Mexican saddle and bridle for $70, a horse which is well and widely known and greatly respected for his speed, good disposition, and everlasting bottom. You give your horse a little grain once a day. It comes from San Francisco and is worth about two cents a pound, and you give him as much hay as he wants. It's cut and brought to the market by natives and is not very good. It's bailed into long, round bundles about the size of a large man. One of them is stuck by the middle on each end of a six-foot pole, and the Kanaka shoulders the pole and walks about the streets between the upright bales in search of customers. These hay bales, thus carried, have a general resemblance to a colossal capital H. These hay bundles cost 25 cents apiece and will last a horse about a day. You can get a horse for a song and a week's hay for another song, and you can turn your animal loose among the luxuriant grass in your neighbor's broad front yard without a song at all. You do it at midnight and stable the beast again before the morning. You have been at no expense thus far. When you come to buy a saddle and bridle, they will cost you 20 to $35. You can hire a horse, saddle, and bridle at 7 to $10 a week, and the owner will take care of them at his own expense. Well, Oahu worried along a smooth, hard road bordered on either side by cottages at intervals, pulu swamps at intervals, fish ponds at intervals, but through a dead-level country all the time. No trees to hide the wide Pacific Ocean on the right or the rugged, towering rampart of solid rock called Diamond Head or Diamond Point straight ahead. The King's Grove, Waikiki A mile and a half from town, I came to a grove of tall coconut trees with clean, branchless stems reaching straight up 60 or 70 feet and topped with a spray of green foliage sheltering clusters of coconuts not more picturesque than a forest of colossal rugged parasols with bunches of magnified grapes under them would be. About a dozen cottages, some frame and others of native grass nestled sleepily in the shade here and there. The grass cabins are of a grayish color, 
and are shaped much like our own cottages, only with higher and steeper roofs than usual, and are made of some kind of weed strongly bound together in bundles. The roofs are very thick, and so are the walls. The latter have square holes in them for windows. At a little distance, these cabins have a furry appearance, as if they might be made of bearskins. They are very cool and pleasant inside. The king's flag was flying from the roof of one of those cottages, and his majesty was probably inside. He owns the whole concern thereabouts, and passes his time frequently on sultry days laying off. The spot is called the King's Grove. Ruins of an Ancient Heathen Temple Nearby is an interesting ruin, the meager remains of an ancient heathen temple, a place where human sacrifices were offered up in those old bygone days when the simple child of nature, yielding momentarily to sin when sorely tempted, acknowledged his error when calm reflection had shown it to him, and came forward with noble frankness and offered up his grandmother as an atoning sacrifice. In those old days when the luckless sinner could keep on cleansing his conscience and achieving periodical happiness as long as his relations held out. Long, long before the missionaries braved a thousand privations to come and make them permanently miserable by telling them how beautiful and how blissful a place heaven is, and how nearly impossible it is to get there, and show the poor native how dreary a place perdition is and what unnecessarily liberal facilities there are for going to it showed him how in his ignorance he had gone and fooled away all his kinfolk to no purpose, and showed him what rapture it is to work all day long for fifty cents to buy food for the next day with, as compared with fishing for pastime and lolling in the shade through eternal summer, and eating of the bounty that nobody labored to provide but nature. How sad it is to think of the multitudes who have gone to their graves in this beautiful island and never knew there was a hell, and it inclines right-thinking man to weep rather than laugh, when he reflects how surprised they must have been when they got there. This ancient temple was built of rough blocks of lava and was simply a roofless enclosure, 130 feet long and 70 wide, nothing but naked walls, very thick but not much higher than a man's head. They will last for ages, no doubt, if left unmolested. Its three altars and other sacred appurtenances have crumbled and passed away years ago. It's said that in the old times thousands of human beings were slaughtered here in the presence of multitudes of naked, whooping, and howling savages. If these mute stones could speak what tales they'd tell, what pictures they could describe of fettered victims writhing and shrieking into the knife, of dense masses of dusky forms straining forward out of the gloom with eager, ferocious faces lit up with the weird light of sacrificial fires, of the vague background of ghostly trees, of the mournful sea washing the dim shore, of the dark pyramid of diamond heads standing sentinel over the dismal scene, and the peaceful moon looking calmly down upon it through rifts in the drifting clouds. When Kamehameha the Great, who was a very Napoleon in military genius and uniform success, invaded this island of Oahu three quarters of a century ago, and exterminated the armies sent to oppose him and took full and final possession of the country, he searched out the dead body of the king of Oahu and those of the principal chiefs and impaled their heads upon the walls of this temple. Those were savage times when this old slaughterhouse was in its prime. The king and the chiefs ruled the common herd with a rod of iron, made them gather all the provisions the masters needed, build all the houses and temples, stand all the expenses of whatever kind, take kicks and cuffs for thanks, drag out lives well flavored with misery, and then suffer death for trifling offenses or yield up their lives on the sacrificial altars to purchase favors from the gods for their hard rulers. The missionaries have clothed them, educated them, broken up the tyrannous authority of their chiefs, and given them freedom and the right to enjoy whatever the labor of their hands and brains produces with equal laws for alls and punishment for all alike who transgress them. The contrast is so strong, the wonderful benefit conferred upon this people by the missionaries is so prominent, so palpable, and so unquestionable, that the frankest complaint I can pay them, and the best, is simply to point to the condition of the Sandwich Islanders of Captain Cook's time and their condition today. Their work speaks for itself. The little collection of cottages of which I was speaking a while ago under the coconut trees is a historical point. It is the village of Waikiki, 
once the capital of the kingdom and the abode of the great Kamehameha the first. In 1801, while he lay encamped by this place with 7,000 men preparing to invade the island of Kauai, he had previously captured and subdued the seven other inhabited islands of the group, one after another, a pestilence broke out in Oahu and raged with great virulence. It attacked the king's army and made great havoc in it. It is said that 300 bodies were washed out to sea in one day. There's an opening in the coral reef at this point, an anchorage inside for a small number of vessels, though one accustomed to the great bay of San Francisco would never take this little belt of smooth water with its border of foaming surf to be a harbor, save for Whitehall boats or something of that kind, but harbors are scarce in these islands. Open roadsteads are the rule here. The harbor of Waikiki was discovered in 1786, seven or eight years after Captain Cook's murder by Captains Portlock and Dixon and the ships King George and Queen Charlotte, the first English vessels that visited the islands after that unhappy occurrence. This little bathing tub of smooth water possesses some further historical interest as being the spot where the distinguished navigator Vancouver landed when he came here in 1792. In conversation with a gentleman today about the scarcity of harbors about the islands, and in all the islands of the South Pacific, he said the natives of Tahiti have a theory that the reason why there are harbors wherever fresh water streams empty into the sea and none elsewhere is that the fresh water kills the coral insect or so discommodes or disgusts it that it will not build its stony wall in its vicinity. And he pointed out that the break in the reef is always found where the fresh water passes over it in support of this theory. This notable equestrian excursion will be concluded in my next letter, if nothing else happens. Mark Twain <laughs>